So and that's exactly what we look to for, from other churches and what you guys are doing for uh, Ricardo and Bona, uh, helping us hold the rope for them, it's encouraging them, supporting them. And so we thank you for that. Um, that is a partnership that we we value. We don't treat that lightly. So thank you for your care and your love for them. And if you want to know, any of you, about more missionary families and other things that are going on, I'm happy to talk about uh, our missionary families all day long because I am so thankful. They have sacrificed so much to live in countries, uh, often a different language, but certainly a different culture. And it's challenging. Uh, They're away from their family and friends here in the States. Uh, They don't have the encouragement of other strong believers around them most of the time. It's it's a lot of people always looking to them to be the answer and the final word, and and that can be very lonely. And so uh, I'm so thankful for each of those families and what they're doing overseas. So it's a great joy and honor for me to be able to to help them and, and to take this role of kind of organizing uh, support and encouragement for missionary families. So Grace Ministries International, our families, we don't operate like a lot of missions agencies where we go to conferences and recruit people to be missionaries. Uh, we're very um, selective, not only selective, but just exclusive. Uh, we only send people that are members of Grace Community Church or graduated from Master's University or Master Seminary. Um, we are not an agency as you would normally think it. We are a ministry of Grace Community Church. Uh, so we are, I'm on staff at Grace Church. We are under the elders' authority. Uh, we have a subgroup of elders called ECHO, Elders Council Handling Outreach. And our group of elders are the ultimate ones in charge. We believe in the local church. I know uh, one of the hallmarks of Lighthouse Churches is, is local churches and planting local churches. Well, we totally agree with that. It's just not in the United States. Uh, we believe in the local church. Um, local church is not an American thing. That is a global thing. That is how God does his work. And if you look at the book of Acts and the fulfillment of the Great Commission... You're not going to see a lot of uh, big crusades. You're not going to see uh, wells being dug or a lot of you know just helping people's physical needs. You'll see local churches. That that's what we see as the fulfillment of the Great Commission in Scripture, and that we believe that continues till today. So as we send people out, it's about the local church in these other countries. Planting new local churches or strengthening existing local churches through pastoral training. But it is the local church and what God is doing through that. Because we believe, as scripture teaches us, the church is the body of Christ. And that is how Christ is doing work now in this earth, is through the local church. So our guys are committed to that. They know what uh, they're going to do is to plant and strengthen local churches, whether that's through pastoring, or whether that's through training pastors to uh, to see God glorified in His church. So that's what Grace Ministries International. Very obviously, very brief explanation of it, but uh, but it's a joy to be part of that, and I'm happy to answer more questions about that at any time uh, this weekend as well. Well, with that, I want to uh, look at James together with you and. Uh, This first message, uh, true wisdom, or true wisdom revealed, 
is what we're going to see. James 3 is what we'll be looking at today. James 3, starting in verse 13. And it's a passage I'm very thankful for that God has used in my own life. When I was um, growing up, uh, my dad, I, I love my father, he went to be with the Lord about 11 years ago now. He had a lot of sayings, uh, and, and maybe your father or you know people that have these different sayings that would go for different situations. Uh, whenever I would wrestle with him, he would say, hey, play with the bull, you get the horns. Uh, meaning, you know, he would, he would make me hurt if I pushed too hard. Um, he'd say, there's a jack for every Jenny. Uh, there's, you know, there's a guy for every girl. And so he would have these sayings and one of them he would say, especially when someone would do something, maybe that was a little foolish. He'd say, look, son, there's two kinds of people in this world, wise and otherwise. (laughs) And I always remember him saying that two kinds of people, wise and otherwise. And what kind of person was I going to be? And that is, in a lot of ways, what James is saying in this passage. There's two kinds of people, wise and otherwise. And in fact, he's going to say there's actually two kinds of wisdom, true wisdom and a false wisdom. But what is the measure of true wisdom? How do you know if you're truly wise or not? Now, I think most of you, if I were to ask, hey, are you a wise person? I think, generally speaking, a, a believer, especially if it's in a church setting, you go, oh, no, no, I'm not a wise person. You, you don't want to claim that for yourself because, hey, it's church. And it's, you know, <laughs> I can't say that in church now in the world, maybe. but And maybe you say that because you're humble and you're truly wise and yet you're you're truly humble. Or maybe you're saying that because you think you're wise and you're wanting to pretend to be humble because that's what you're supposed to do. Or maybe you're just stupid. Uh, you know, it could be any one of those. Maybe you're not wise. But I think one place where everyone does claim wisdom these days is on the internet, social media. Um, I, you've probably heard of this thing called social media. It's become relatively popular. Um, it seems like everyone is on it, and it's not just in the States. It's around the world. And in social media, it seems like everyone thinks they have all the answers. If you see an issue come up, people will uh, debate about the issue. And it's not that social media in itself is bad. Sure, there, there can be benefits. You can encourage people. Uh, you can share things that will help others. And it's not it, it's that it's bad in itself, but it is a medium that tends to lend itself to some pretty strong arguments. I think the whole thing with, you know, having anonymously being able to post comments is part of that as well. But it seems to reduce people's inhibitions to claim some degree of wisdom. And on social media, it's not that, you, you know, you see a lot of mild opinions. Uh, it's strong opinions. No opinion exists on the internet except strong opinions. It appears. It's like it's everything's at the volume level of 10 or 11 even. Um, and the thought is online, you win at all costs. You say whatever you need to. You make ad hominem attacks. You do what you need to to win your argument. Uh, one of the things that I have seen that it, I, I amuses me is something they call Godwin's Law. Are you familiar with Godwin's Law of the Internet and Internet usage? 
It's basically a guy who said this, the longer a common thread goes on social media, the probability of Nazis or Hitler coming up approaches 100%. (laughs) And I have certainly found that to be true. Any any comment thread, eventually someone will accuse the other of being a Nazi or just like Hitler or that idea is just like the Nazis. Um, And that's how discussions work a lot of times on the Internet. It's win at all costs. But is being able to win an argument... Or win a debate, whether it's online or in person, is that the measure of wisdom? Is that how we decide if someone is wise, if they can win an argument? And what we see here in the book of James is two types of wisdom compared, true wisdom, that that comes from God, and the wisdom from the world. And the thing is, they're both labeled wisdom. And so we have to be wise. Okay, what is truly from God and what is from this earth? And you may think you are wise, but James is warning you, your so-called wisdom may not be from God at all. It may be just an earthly wisdom. And so what we'll see is a contrast between what the world says and what God says. And we will see true wisdom revealed. So there's going to be three major points this morning that, as we walk through this text. Again, James 3, 13-18. And... The first is going to be this, the measure of wisdom in verse 13. The measure of wisdom. And then secondly, we're going to look at the marks of false wisdom. And then the marks of true wisdom will be the different ones we look at together. And I'd love to just go to the Lord one more time before we dive into this passage. Let's pray together. Father, as we turn to the truth from your word... Lord, we pray that our hearts would be ready to accept what you have to say, that we would be ready to examine ourselves in light of the truth of your word. Lord, we do not want to be the man who looks at the perfect law of your word and walk away unchanged. Lord, we would be fools to do so. Lord, it's easy to find application to other people as we look to your word, but may we look only to ourselves and how we match up with what your word says and humble ourselves in response. God, may you be glorified. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, let's read this passage together here. James 3, if you have your Bibles there, James 3, verses 13 to 18. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And I'm going to be teaching from the New American Standard Bible, but certainly uh, other versions, I think, uh, very close in their translation of the Greek. 
But um, if you're wondering where I'm coming from, that's New American. But first we're going to see in verse 13 here, the measure of wisdom, verse 13. And he starts off by asking a question. Who among you is wise and understanding? Now throwing out a question to his readers is something that James likes to do. You'll see throughout the book of James, he throws out questions to his readers. And he does it to get them to think, to get them to evaluate themselves. If you look up in chapter 2, in verses 4 to 7, he lists a number of questions there about making distinctions among yourselves. Have you not made distinctions and become judges with evil motives? Verse 5 is also a question. Did not God choose the poor of this world? Verse 6 is a question. Verse 7 is a question. Later in 2.14, just a little bit down, he asks a number of questions about faith without works. Can that faith save him. And even in chapter 3, just above what we were looking at, verses 12 and 13, he asks questions. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? And this is, again, James' pattern of asking these questions. And mainly his rhetorical questions. Questions where the answer is right in there. He just wants them to think and to consider themselves in that way. So he's asking a question to us in verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Now, as we consider this question, let's remember who's asking us this question. Who is James? And who does he think he is asking me this question? Well, James, as we've talked about already, he's the half-brother of Jesus. He is the oldest half-brother. So he was the second one born or the first one to to Joseph, in fact. So James is a half-brother of Jesus, but that's not how he introduces himself in this book, as we looked at. Uh, In 1-1, way at the beginning of of the book of James, he introduces himself as a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus. He doesn't call himself an apostle because he wasn't an apostle. But he was the half-brother of Jesus, and I'm telling you, and he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the early church in Jerusalem. We'll read that in Acts as well. And if I was the leader of the first church in Jerusalem, if I was the half-brother of Jesus, I'm pretty sure I'd have a t-shirt made um, saying that, so everyone would know. But James doesn't even say that in the writing of this letter. He doesn't claim any of his own authority except that he's a bondservant of God. And what we look at as we're going to be looking at this passage here is James exhibits the very humility that he teaches. We may think, well, look James, it's one thing for you to tell us to be humble, but what about you? Well, James, without even saying it, but what he doesn't say in introducing himself shows us of his own humility. So that is James who is writing this. Now, who is he writing it to? Well, again, in verse 1, we see it's to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. Well, the 12 tribes, that makes us think, well, he's writing then to Jewish believers. And that is the case. He is writing to Jewish people primarily. And we see that again, even in chapter 2, he calls Abraham our father in 2.21. So we see he's writing to Jews, and he calls them many times our brothers, brethren, my brothers, Throughout, And so he's writing to Christian Jews. 
Now, when we say that, was every single person that was going to be receiving this letter a believer? No. No, but generally it's two groups of believers, but not everyone is. Because James knows what we should all know as well, that not everyone who's part of a church is a believer. There are people that are in the church that are may even think that they're believers, and that, that frankly may be you. You love the interaction. Um, there's good things that are said, and maybe even intellectually. There's an acceptance of, yes, I, I believe Jesus died and rose again. But James knows, and, and we should remember, that it's not being in church that makes you a Christian. And so what James does in his letters, he gives a series of tests. And that's what the book of James is all about, is these tests to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And he gives quite a few tests going through. He's already given the test of doubt in chapter 1. If you respond to trials with doubt, rather than joy, you're a double-minded man. And you are not walking with the Lord. Later in chapter 1, if you do not receive the word humbly, you're deluding yourself. Another test of true faith. If you show partiality, you are breaking God's law. If your faith does not result in good works, you are spiritually dead. And then just earlier in chapter 3, if your tongue is known for its cursing rather than blessing, you cannot claim Christ either. So there are a series of tests that James wants to give because although he's writing to brothers in the church, there are those who don't know Christ, whose life has not been changed. Because if someone's life has not been changed by the gospel, they don't really know the gospel. They haven't truly embraced it. And so James wants to point that out in a number of different ways. And that's what he's doing in this passage as well. This is the test of wisdom. Is it a true wisdom? Is it a false wisdom? Are you truly a child of God? Now he's not just talking, as he talks about wisdom here, he's not just talking to teachers in the church. Some may have thought that because 3 verse 1, chapter 3 verse 1, he addresses teachers, not, not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing as such will incur a stricter judgment. And certainly he is addressing them in verse 1, but as he goes to talk about the tongue and the, the dangers of the tongue, that has broad application beyond just teachers. And so we see he's moved from teachers to the general church, and even after this passage, later today we're going to look at conflicts in the church, and that's not addressing teachers either. So we can see from the flow that this is not restricted just to teachers about wisdom and understanding, but every one of us must answer this question. Are you wise in understanding? Every one of us must evaluate ourselves and determine whether we are. And so after he asks this question, we see here in verse 13 the measure of true wisdom. He says this, look at verse 13 again. Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. James says if you think you have wisdom, you need to show it. And the verb there, to show, let him show, that's an imperative. You must show it. It's a command. He doesn't say, tell me about it. 
He doesn't say, if you think you have wisdom, let me give you this uh, doctrine test and see how you do in your doctrine. He says, show it. And one of the things I found in, in talking to a number of people in counseling situations, people can have a great theology on paper. You can have a great, or what we would say, confessional theology. Or you would check all the boxes on who Christ is, what it means to follow Christ, what it means to you know tell the truth rather than tell a lie, that what it means for the husband to be a leader, for the wife to be submissive. But then it comes to living it out. And how does it practically live out? And we've done marriage counseling where wife says, yes, I agree with submission, but he tells me things and I'm supposed to do it? Like, well, yeah, <laughs> that's kind of what it means. It's very different, your confessional theology sometimes and your lived out theology or street theology. Now the goal is, the idea is those should match. You should live out exactly what you say you believe, but some of us, I'm afraid, don't. And James says it needs to show by good behavior. Is your wisdom showing by what you do? Because claiming wisdom is not sufficient. It's not sufficient to claim wisdom any more than it's enough to claim faith without works. He said in in chapter 2, verse 18, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Claiming faith isn't enough. It has to show itself by works. Also, knowledge in itself does not equal wisdom. In James 2.19, he says, you believe God is one, you do well. Demons also believe and shudder. It's not in the claiming that wisdom is known. It's not in just the believing that wisdom is known. It's in the doing. It's in the behavior in deeds of gentleness. So how do you speak with others? That's how it's going to be shown. Are you wise? Well, what is your conversation like with others? What heart attitudes are manifested by your words and your actions in your daily life? To see whether you have wisdom, what does your life look like? That's what James is saying here. This is the measure of true wisdom. And importantly, he says, again, looking at verse 13, let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, in the gentleness of wisdom. And that's a key word in this passage, gentleness. And the Greek word here means exactly that. It can be translated gentle or humble or meek. I think if you have the ESV, it says meek or meekness. And the lexicon would define it as a quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. So perhaps humility is a word that would, would fit very well in our vernacular. And James used this word earlier in the book, in James 1.21, and I believe it's the passage Mark read this morning. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all the remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted. That's James 1.21. So in that passage, James says we need to receive the word with humility. And here it says we need to speak with humility and have an attitude of humility in our own lives. And humility is one of those aspects that is absolutely essential uh, to living a mature Christian life. 
If there is a lack of humility, other sins are sure to follow. And we see humility talked about many times throughout Scripture. It's either mentioned as humility or gentleness. One of the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, it says we walk in a manner worthy of our calling with all humility and gentleness. Paul reminded Timothy, the Lord's bondservant, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when, wrong, when wronged, and with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. And of course, the greatest example of gentleness is our Savior, is it not? When He came, and His gentleness with those who were broken and hurting. And Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus says, I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That is the model, that is the mark of true wisdom, is how Christ lived. Now we may think, well, wait a minute. Yes, that was true of Christ in certain ways, but there were also cases where he came down pretty hard on the Pharisees. Um, he said some pretty rough things to them, and certainly uh, we see when he went to the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers. Is that gentle? Is that humble? Well, certainly it's not what we would normally think as humble and gentle uh, in certain ways, and yet... What was Jesus doing there? He was he was fighting for God's glory. It was a righteous anger. It was God's glory that was important. Not looking out for himself, but he was always submitting himself to the will of the Father. And there are times when we need to call out false teachers. And that's what Jesus did. The religious leaders is who he was calling out. And sometimes harsh words are used, or strong words are used about false teachers. And... If you're familiar, uh, you know, at Pastor MacArthur, where, where I serve, he, he says some strong words about false teachers many times. And there is certainly the case for that. We see Jesus doing that. And false teachers who are leading people astray need to be pointed out as false to others. But that doesn't mean you go to maybe one of the followers and beat them up and call them out because they've been deceived and led astray. And so I know some are harsh because they say, well, I've seen this guy you know, call out false teachers harshly. Well, that's a whole different category than maybe someone who is caught up in that as well. I've heard people, uh, you know, not, not even false teaching, but maybe a book that is not uh, well received, and they oh, you read that, you know, and speak harshly to them. And that is unwise and unloving and certainly not humble. We need to be gentle and humble as we go to other people. And we're reminded, what did Jesus say in Matthew 7 about judging other people? He said, first take the log out of your own eye. And what is the point there? It is you need to have humility in confessing your own sin. You need to humble yourself. And then he doesn't say, and then, by the way, forget about the speck in the other guy's eye. No, you still, and then remove the speck. But you must come with humility, confessing your own sin. And that's the mark of true wisdom. It's not 
ignoring issues. It's not talking about other people behind their back. It's going to them in humility. It's a lot easier to to criticize behind people's back, to say negative things. Uh, it's, it's a lot easier also to be very harsh and just come to someone and slam them, but to come humbly and graciously when there's an issue. That is the mark of humility. And that is how humility is measured, is by our humility and how we interact with people. Not in your knowledge, not in your claim, but do you come humbly to others? So that is the measure of true wisdom, is what James tells us here in verse 13. But if that's not enough, he then he wants to give some evidences, some marks. Marks first of what's falsely called wisdom, and then we'll see some marks of what is true wisdom. Because we want to make sure that we have the right wisdom. We want to make sure, and so he, he really spells this out for us. So in verses 14 to 16, we'll see the marks of false wisdom. And then there'll be three areas where he shows us these marks. So three subpoints. Letter A, then the heart of false wisdom. And then we'll see secondly, B, the qualities of false wisdom. And then C, the results of false wisdom. So we'll see the heart of false wisdom in 14, the qualities of false wisdom in 15, and the results of false wisdom in verse 16. So starting in verse 14 then, the heart of false wisdom. So looking at 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. He's saying now in contrast, but here in the beginning, this is something different than true wisdom. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. So what do these words mean? Well, the word there for jealousy is zealous, which zealous is the same word we say for zealous. And it can be positive in some contexts, but certainly here when it's modified by the word bitter, uh, it's not a positive zealousness. It's a, it's a harsh zealousness. This word bitter here in 14 is the same one he just used in verse 11, where he's talking about the difference between fresh and bitter water. It's that bitterness. So this bitter, it's, it's harsh to the taste. It's, it's a harsh t- kind of zealousness. A harsh zeal is a mark of false wisdom. And one commentator described it this way. The problem is that zeal can easily become blind fanaticism, bitter strife, or a disguised form of rivalry and thus jealousy. The person sees himself as jealous for the truth, but God and others see the bitterness, rigidity, and personal pride which are far from the truth. And this kind of harsh zeal uh, is a reality, I'm afraid, in a lot of believers' lives. And, and examine your own heart. Is that true of you? We had the experience um, sending someone out to the mission field years ago, and this person saw some issues on the mission field that were problematic. And I think in a lot of ways, he was right. He saw some genuine issues that were out there, but the way he approached it was a harsh zeal. He stirred up strife among other people. 
Instead of humbly coming to the leader, he went to others and said, isn't it foolish what this guy is doing? Isn't it wrong? And we shouldn't listen to this guy. And he came not in humility, but in saying, I, I see something that's wrong. I'm going to turn others against the leader of that group. Well, this came to light, and he, we had to pull him off the mission field. And it was a tough situation because he would not repent and see his lack of humility. But here's a guy, he knew God's Word. He understood truth. He, could, he knew Greek better than I did. And he even evaluated the situation correctly in a lot of ways. But the way he approached it was a harsh zeal. And I think as you face different situations, are you coming at it with a heart of humility or a harsh zeal? I know what's right and I know what's best. Or are you coming at it with, Lord, what do you want what's best? And how do I come alongside others in looking towards together finding the solution? And then he couples this bitter zeal or bitter jealousy with selfish ambition in the heart. And that word means, just as it sounds, it's self-seeking. It's looking out for your own self-interest. Outside the New Testament, it was used for those who... Uh, self-seeking pursuit of political office. And we know, seeking self is antithetical to living the Christian life. In studying 1 Corinthians 13, you'll see all those descriptions of love are completely separate from pursuing yourself. It's pursuing the good of others. And if you are pursuing yourself, seeking your own, as 1 Corinthians 13 puts it, love does not seek its own. If that is you, you are not displaying a true wisdom. It's not love and it's not wisdom either. We are instead to have the attitude in Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. So we need to check our hearts. This then is the heart of false wisdom. And that is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And if that's the case, James says, the end of verse 14 there, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. If that is how you can be characterized by this bitter zeal and and self-seeking, then you are lying against the truth. You are not truly having wisdom. You, you're lying. You're being arrogant and you are not correct. So you may know the doctrine. You may know even in a situation you think you have a right perspective. But if you come at it with the wrong heart attitude, James says you are lying against the truth. And this is not true wisdom, but a false wisdom. Your motive must be, in any time you're coming to someone, a desire for God to be glorified and to build the other person up, not for yourself. So that is the heart of false wisdom. Next, let's look at verse 15 here. We're going to see the qualities of false wisdom. If that wasn't enough, James is going to give us more of a description here in verse 15 of what qualities there are of false wisdom. And first he says this, This wisdom, what he just described, this bitter zeal and selfishness, is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. By saying it's not that which comes down from above, he said that's not God, that's not from God. 
God doesn't provide that kind of wisdom, not that harshness, not that selfishness. That's a that's very different from what God provides. In chapter 1, he says, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. This is not a good and perfect gift, this harshness and bitterness at all. Instead, he says, it's not from God, but it is earthly, it is natural, and it is demonic. And earthly looks at things that are purely on the horizontal. It doesn't reach beyond this world to heavenly things. It's, it's just earthly. It's just stuff of this earth and not truly spiritual things. Natural. It just affects the material world. It's, it's not grasping the things of God. So in a lot, a lot of overlap, earthly, natural, and then demonic as well. In chapter 3, verse 6, James mentioned how destructive speech is set on fire by hell. And now he's saying false wisdom that's filled with selfish pride has more in common with demons than with God. That's, that's pretty strong language. It's not like, hey, that was a bad idea to be harsh that way. Hey, you know what? Next time, maybe a little different in how you approach. No, James says, look, that is earthly. It is natural. It is demonic. Do we see our sin as bad as it is? If we approach people with this selfishness, with this bitterness, it is demonic. And we need to repent from that. Sometimes we don't recognize how bad our sin really is before God. And we treat it lightly. But Scripture does not. And you must not either. And these three qualities he lists here, what is earthly, natural, demonic, we see a parallel then with the three ways that temptation comes to us. Temptation comes from the world. It's earthly. Temptation comes from our own flesh. It's natural. And temptation comes from Satan as well. It's it's demonic. So we see there is a lot tempting us to have this kind of false wisdom. The world around us certainly parades this type of false wisdom. Pride is seen as a good thing to people in this world. There's pride months and pride everything. That it's great. You've got to have pride. Pride in yourself. That's a very worldly thing. Our flesh... Certainly our flesh longs for pride. Our flesh longs to see others like us more, to see ourselves exalted. And certainly Satan and the demons would love to see us be prideful as well because anytime we seek our own glory, it's taking glory away from God. So that is what false wisdom, the qualities of false wisdom. And it is a serious thing. It's no small thing. But next we see in 16, letter C then, under the second point, is the results of false wisdom. What are the results? He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. You want to know if it's true or false wisdom? Look at what the results are. Is there disorder? Is there instability and confusion? And James uses the word earlier in verse, or chapter 1, verse 8 to talk about the double-minded man who is unstable in all his ways. That word unstable there, the same word. 
The result of this selfishness, this bitter zeal, is instability. And a lot of times it's church conflict. And those who often create church conflict aren't doing it as, you know, the goal for me is to create a ruckus in the church. I want to create conflict. That's the result. That's what comes out. What starts it is, I know better. It's the attitude of, I know what's best. I'm actually the only one in the right here. I need to gather people to agree with me because I am in the right. That is a false wisdom because what happens from it? The result is disorder. We know false wisdom by by the results is what James says. Where that exists, there is disorder in every evil thing. Every evil thing, really the, the Greek there has more the idea of every worthless thing. No good comes from it. No good can come from this bitter zeal. No good can come from pushing your own agenda to make yourself look better or because you think you know better. It causes instability, confusion, and it's, it's worthless. It's not going to be helpful. So false wisdom. Pretty strong words here. Pretty strong words of what's at the heart of false wisdom, the qualities of it, the results of false wisdom. But I'm thankful James doesn't just leave us with, okay, that's what false wisdom is. He goes on, all right, what is true wisdom? What does that really look like? Because it's one thing to be able to point out the false, but let's pursue what is good. Scripture often talks about putting off and putting on. So what are we to put on? What is the true wisdom that we're to seek here? And we'll see it in the same breakdown here. The heart of true wisdom, the qualities of true wisdom, and the results of true wisdom. We'll see in these next two verses. So the heart of true wisdom, starting in verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure. And then he's going to give a list of a number of other items here. Then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy. The only one he calls out as being first is pure. The rest are not in any order, but pure must be first. And why does he list that? It's not saying first in sequence so much as first is in importance. And pure means that it's free from any kind of defilement. The wisdom from above does not have any hint of bitter zeal and selfishness. It is pure from that. It doesn't have a self-seeking aspect to it. True wisdom comes from motives of the glory of God and the good of others. Not for advancement, not for recognition. If you answer James' question, yes, I am wise in understanding, you better be coming from a pure heart, free of pride. True wisdom, the wisdom from God, from above, is first pure. It is devoid of any type of wrong motive. And we are, as 1 John 3 says, to purify ourselves as He is pure. We are to to come with holy and clean motives. So here's the heart of true wisdom. It is a heart that is completely humble, not self-seeking in any way. And then he describes the qualities of true wisdom in the rest of verse 17. Wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, 
unwavering, without hypocrisy. So what do each of these mean? Then, peaceable. Wisdom seeks peace. We're reminded in Romans 12.18, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, seek peace with all men. And a quality of true wisdom will be one that seeks peace. And he's going to continue on that later in verse 18. That is what true wisdom will look like. It won't be one that causes division or seeks division, but one that seeks harmony and and peacefulness. Paul instructed Timothy in this way in 2 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. He says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, creating those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Kind to all, patient when wronged. That is the quality. It's, it's peace-seeking. We do need to correct those who are walking away from the Lord, but we do so in a humble, gentle way. Peace is not, well, never saying anything to help another brother, but it's doing so in a gentle, humble way. So first we see peaceable, then gentle. Now the word gentle here in verse 17, you think, well, okay, he talked about gentleness in 13, but it's actually a different word, a different Greek word that's used. And the word gentle here in 17 has the idea of courteous or tolerant, not insisting your own way. It's it's a courteousness to say, okay, I'm not going to necessarily have my own way. That's a quality of what true wisdom is. But when it's a preference issue, it's setting aside your preference. And we see that in other places in Scripture. Certainly Paul, in evangelizing, he says, look, I set aside all things for the sake of the gospel. He set aside his preferences, his desires. In one place, you know, there was the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols, and Paul would say, I give up meat entirely to win souls for Christ. And if you love meat as much as I do, uh, particularly bacon, which I think we can all agree is the finest of the meats, <laughs> setting aside something like that would be very difficult. A preference, a desire of your own for others' good. Yet Paul says, I'm willing to do that. And certainly that's what true wisdom does. It's setting aside maybe your own preferences for others. It is what's said here as gentle. Next, reasonable. The better translation might be yielding. Uh, um, And this is the only time this word is used in Scripture. And it speaks of being compliant or submissive. And true wisdom does recognize authority in the church. And it does recognize uh, authority structures. And we need to be submissive. And a lot of times to, to one another. Certainly there's order in the home as well. I mean, if we apply this passage to relationships in the home, the, the husband-wife relationship, Scripture is clear on that, what, what the wife's role is. It, and it's to have this compliance, this submission, not, not in a doormat kind of way, but in a loving way, in a joyful way, to work as a team together. And true wisdom acts that way. It acts in a submissive, compliant way to others. That's what James saying. Next, full of mercy and good fruits. And those two qualities are tied together there. Mercy is compassion and love. 
And it's recognizing, to really have mercy, when you recognize the mercy that's been showed to us, how much easier is it to show mercy to others? The parable that Jesus told of, of the master who forgives this large amount of the servant, the servant who turns around is unwilling to have mercy towards someone who owed him very little, is such a great picture of how we act so many times. We have been shown great mercy by God. Are we demonstrating mercy to others? True wisdom is full of that kind of mercy. And it's full of good fruit. It is full of doing things for others good for their edification. To do good works. To serve. To bless others. And then unwavering. Unwavering without variance. Without doubting. Not vacillating. True wisdom does not go back and forth on on one hand seeking your own and then okay I gotta be humble but then there's part of it I still want to seek my own no it it stands firm it doesn't waver back and forth and it goes along with the the last one in verse 17 without hypocrisy it doesn't pretend to be on everyone's side in a matter but it's sincere in word and actions there is a, a genuineness not, not hypocritical not vacillating this unwavering idea, but it is clear, humble, and straightforward. These are the qualities of true wisdom. So as you examine your heart, are these the qualities that your life shows? Peaceable, gentle, reasonable? Or is it more in line with what was said earlier? This bitterness, this harsh zeal that is shown. So these qualities we see, do we seek peace? Are we being gentle, being courteous and tolerant to the view of others? Are you reasonable, demonstrating compliance with true teaching? Are you full of mercy and good fruit, remembering the great mercy that was shown to you? Are you unwavering, consistent in your humility? And are you without hypocrisy? Not pretending to support, but then criticizing behind others' back. Do you have this kind of true wisdom? And if you do, there will be a result that that people will be able to see, and that's in verse 18. What is the result of true wisdom? Verse 18, And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now that's, the construction there, at least in American, is a little challenging to figure out. And in the Greek, more literally, it's the fruit of righteousness in peace is sown by those who make peace. Not, not much easier. It's a challenging in how that's worded, but the idea is this. He's saying that righteousness, which is the result or the fruit, that comes, that's what we're seeking after, that, that end goal, that fruit of righteousness. That comes when peace is being sown by those who are seeking peace. If you are seeking peace in the situation, well, the result, the fruit, is going to be righteousness. And that's the desired result. And if we want that, we need to be seeking peace, not conflict. And if your wisdom does not have peace as its aim, it will not result in righteousness. So... The original question, who among you is wise and understanding? It's very clear it's not going to be the one who is harsh 
is not going to be the one who is just full of his own zeal and selfish ambition. It's going to be the one who humbly comes to the other, is seeking peace, is seeking God to be glorified in it. And as you examine your own heart and you think of conversations maybe you've had in the past few weeks, how can it be measured? How, how do you stack up against what James says here? Are you in humbly going to your brothers and sisters in Christ and working through things and saying words that build up and edify? Or are you in any way have this harsh zeal, this selfish ambition and seeking your own? James is going to talk about conflict in the next passage. And we're going to look at that later today. But this is where it starts. Are you coming with the right heart of humility? And if not, we'll see what happens. There will be conflict. And I pray instead that God will bring peace. Will bring peace in your personal lives, in your home life, in your workplace, in your families, in in the church. Because you are loving one another in this group with humility. Let's pray that God would make that true of our lives. Father, we want to be known as children of God. Lord, and we know that Christ was the perfect example of humility and gentleness. Lord, I pray that as we examine our own lives, our own hearts, may that be true in our lives as well. Lord, we thank You for Your Word and the knowledge in it, but may we never use that as a weapon, as a way to be arrogant, but recognizing that any good thing has come from You and we are just recipients of Your grace. So God, we we pray, make us humble people before You. We ask the name of Christ. Amen.